today as we continue in our, with our journey through the life of Samuel, we will be reading together from 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And you'll be able to find that on page 318 of your pew Bible. The Word of God. Now, it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, and he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants." And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what do you think of when you think of royalty today? You boys and girls probably think of the kinds of royalty that Disney movies put forward princesses who wear beautiful dresses, even in the middle of a snowstorm. Princes who run onto the scene with flashing swords. And more recently, princesses who don't need saving, but instead choose to save themselves, with a man acting as more of a sidekick to the princess. For us adults, 
we more than likely think of our own royal family. Of course, we haven't had a king since King George VI, who reigned until his death in 1952. But most, if not all of us, are very familiar with our queen, Queen Elizabeth II, named Queen by the grace of God. Queen Elizabeth is the world's oldest and longest reigning queen in the world today, as well as the longest reigning British monarch to ever serve the people. However, today her position is much more of a figurehead than anything else. Our image of a king and queen is someone who goes and does public visits, does fundraisers for various groups, and has the theoretical power to overturn certain laws or to block certain laws, but never does, because once used, that power would likely quickly be lost. And their personal wealth and income means that we probably earn more off of them in tourist dollars than we spend with regards to tax dollars. We don't feel a huge dent because of the royal family. This is, there is certainly more that the royal family does and can do, but this is the image that we often have in our minds when we think of royalty. We have this image of figureheads. In the ancient world, however, to be a king and to have a king was a radically different thing. Some were good kings, but many were not. Many were only interested in the expansion of their own kingdom and in the growth of their own wealth and power than they were in actually doing good for their people. Certainly, they did enough good to keep their people content, but that was because they needed their people to keep a good thing going. Now, you'll notice that I described Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth as queen by the grace of God, and that is one of her titles. But kings back in the day were not just considered kings by the grace of God, but they were gods in the eyes of the people. Pharaoh was a god on earth, a divine mediator between the people and the gods of the heavenly realms. The Persian king Xerxes I was seen as the god king. Many of the nations around Israel had kings that they equated with either being gods or having a direct line to the gods and being able to intercede on behalf of the people. This made it much less likely for them to rise up against their rulers. After all, who wants divine wrath poured out on themselves? They would tax their people. Their wars of expansion would call up the sons of the people, and their needs for servants in their courts would take away their daughters. But their kings would also be sources of earthly pride and confidence for the people. The more powerful their king and the more wealthy his palaces and his courts looked, the more they could lift up their heads in the faces of the nations around them. Think about the gardens of King Nebuchadnezzar, the hanging gardens of Babylon. It's still considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world today. This was the kind of king that the people of Israel had heard about. These were the kinds of kings that they, that they heard the peoples of the nations around speak of. 
And they command Samuel, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. It's this demand that deeply distresses Samuel because he knows that at its root, there's a deeper issue that needs to be exposed. And the only way it can be exposed is to ask the question, who is your king? On receiving this command, he writes this chapter in such a way that it demands the reader, whether Israelite, foreigner, or we here in Owen Sound today, as we read this history, to ask ourselves, who is your king? We'll examine this question under the following theme and points. Who is your king? First, when leaders fail. Second, we'll see earthly kings. And third, the heavenly king. So why do the people of Israel want a king? It was a failure on the part of their present leaders. Our passage today opens with some sad words. We read, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old, and he made his, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Despite the fact that he had witnessed Eli's sons go down this very path, Samuel was able to do no better in raising his sons than Eli. But you can see a contrast in the way that they were raised. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Samuel's predecessor, Eli, they had foreign names. Their father had given in to the way that the culture was going. He had given in and his sons and allowed his sons to begin wandering. His efforts at discipline were weak, as you can see in the chapters prior to this in 1 Samuel. And his lack of action along with his son's wickedness led their family to disaster. Samuel, on the other hand, had lived a faithful life. And we can see this reflected in the way that he names his sons as well. He names his sons Joel, meaning, meaning Yahweh is God, and Abijah, meaning my father is Yahweh. The names of his sons were testimonies to where his loyalties lay with the covenant God of Israel. More than that, we know that he continued to walk in faithfulness because in verse 3 we see a deliberate contrast. His sons did not walk in his ways. And sadly, this is the testament that some faithful parents do see both in history and today. Often when children go astray, it will indeed be partly on the parents. The parents were not good leaders. They were not faithful in holding their children accountable or disciplining them. Leadership, beginning in the home, was lacking. In Proverbs 13, verse 24, we read, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Obviously, this is not a call by the church for you to break out the rod, but it does point to the importance of careful discipline and discipling your child. Again, in Proverbs 29, verse 17, we read, Discipline your children and they will give you peace. They will bring you the delights you desire. 
And in Proverbs 19, verse 18, we read, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. Or as a more contemporary version that I would not usually use, puts it, Discipline your children while they are young enough to learn. If you don't, they, you are helping them to destroy themselves. Discipline your children while they are young enough to learn. If you don't, you are helping them destroy themselves. Now Eli, the man who had come before Samuel, had failed as a leader in the community, and he had failed as a leader in the home. Eli did not discipline his sons in the way that he ought to have, and it did indeed lead to the destruction of his children. It's for this reason that we read in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3, the verses 4 to 5, that a leader in the church must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his house, how will he take care of the church of God? That's a fair point. If someone fails in leading their own home, then to lead a church or a city or a nation could very well lead to disaster. And that was the fear that the leaders of the people of Israel expressed in 1 Samuel 8. They were terribly afraid that what was happening with Samuel's sons would just be a repeat of what had happened with Eli. And it wasn't so far along that they didn't remember the disaster that God had inflicted on his people because of it. Now as an aside, it's absolutely necessary to note that it's not always the case that it's failure on the part of a parent. Sometimes parents are faithful. We can see this in the case of Samuel himself who is known for his faithful walk. You'll see that it doesn't say except in the way that he raises his sons. Yet for reasons known only to God, the children choose to spurn the teachings of their father Samuel that were passed down to them. The parents pray for their children. Samuel likely prayed for his children, just like parents today pray for their children with weeping. And yet, the hearts of the children are hardened. Beloved, let us grieve with such parents and pray together with them and earnestly and fervently pray for the salvation of their children. Pray that the seed which was planted in their heart as a young, at a young age and carefully nurtured during their time in the home would take root. And let us be encouraged to strive to make absolutely sure that our children never fall into this same pattern of life through our own negligence. Because if it brings such heartache when the parents have tried their best and completely relied on God, we know it will be devastating if it happens through our own lack of leadership in the home. After that aside, however, it's important to recognize what we see in our passage today. Whether being well-raised or not, when a child rebels against God and against you, boys and girls, when you make a habit of rebelling against your parents, what happens doesn't stay in the home, and it doesn't stay between you and your dad and mom. It 
bleeds out into your other relationships in the world too. Because children grow up. As you boys and girls get older and as you start to be given more and more positions of authority, it has an effect. You will see the change. You will see the impact that it has. Whether you lead well or you lead poorly in your own friend groups. And as you grow older, you'll see the impact that it has in your own children, your church, your community, and perhaps even in your country. This is what happened in the case of the sons of Samuel. It happened in the case of Eli when the sins of his sons caused the nation to hate the sacrifices of the Lord. And it happened in the case of Eli here, uh, in the case of Samuel's sons here as well. The people respond to the failures and the wickedness of the people who are in authority over them. And they respond by seeking their hope elsewhere. Now, it's important to recognize that these people are not without excuse. Yes, their leaders have failed. But the question is laid upon them. Where are you looking? When your leaders fail, where are you putting your hope? Even if these people are people whom you have come to rely on, people who should be good leaders, where are you putting your hope first and foremost when they fail? And we see here today how instead of looking to God, they look to an earthly king. For the people of Israel, we see the big problem the moment that the people begin to speak. At first, it sounds very good. They say, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. That sounds pretty pious, doesn't it? It sounds like people who are concerned with the moral and spiritual well-being of the people. Even what they say after that isn't necessarily wrong. They say, now make us a king. That in itself is not outright a problem, and we'll get to what's problematic about it in a moment. But the truly big problem is how they finish off that sentence. They say, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Ah, there it is. They are looking over the fence and seeing how the grass is greener on the other side. That secular country next door is running a program that seems to be working. Sure, I haven't had a chance to see the internal problems there. I don't know where they are spiritually, but it has a lot of flash and grammar, glamour, and I like it. Let's adopt it. Let's get a king for ourselves, they say. Now, getting to that first point, where they ask for a king, we see how the problem starts. Asking for a king in itself was not the biggest problem. God had known this day would come, and so he had specifically set aside for them principles governing kings in Deuteronomy 17. He had given them laws for kings to abide by. But even so, Samuel has a valid point. God is their king at this point in time. They know this. You can see with regards to the, uh, the, the things that Samuel warns them about, the percentage of their flocks, 
that he takes, the percentage of their income that he takes in order to take care of his servants. Well, God already does this with them. In worshiping him, they are called to give up a portion of their incomes to support the priests who will lead them, who will guide them in righteousness, who will guide them to seek the Lord faithfully. They know that God is their king. They can also see how he has governed them and brought them back to faithfulness time and time again through his judges when they went off to pursue other gods. So the question is, why are they looking for a replacement? The second and more problematic point of their request is, like we said, they were asking for a king like all the nations. They wanted one like the nations around them. They could ask for a judge to lead them. God had granted them judges. But they thought, you know what? No. No, we want a king. We want a king. A judge would do many of the same things that a king would do. But a king brings along with it that flashiness. You can see that it grieves Samuel. And we read in verse 6 how it does so. It says the thing displeased Samuel. To him, it's a slap in the face. It's terribly personal. All of his years of hard work were now being thrown out. Sure, maybe they don't want hereditary judges. They don't want his sons to be judges. But was his service to them so terrible that they don't even want anything to do with his office anymore? Judges have been ruling the people for centuries. Are they so displeased with his faithful service, his pouring out his heart for his people, his constant traveling on a circuit, never resting in one place for too long, just for their sake? Was that such a failure for them? his lifetime of devotion to them, that they don't want anyone like him to rule over them again. But whatever sorrow Samuel himself has, it's dwarfed by that of the Lord. You can hear it in his, in his words as he says, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And then he goes on to remind Samuel of what he has done to take care of his people, saying, according to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, I have provided for them since they came out of Egypt, and they have been rebelling against me in response to that, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing this to you also. Samuel, he's saying, you aren't experiencing anything that I haven't experienced. Their rejection of you is only a symptom of a larger rejection. Their rejection of you and of your life's work is a reflection of their rejection of me, their continued rejection of me ever since I rescued them from Egypt. And even though they reject him. Yet, even though they reject him, he shows his love for them in this. He says, Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of a king who will reign over them. You see, the Lord stands outside of history. 
He's not bound by time. He can look ahead. And he knew that there, were ki- that there would be kings who would ignore and abuse them. But note, he already knew this when he had created the laws for kings in centuries past in the first place. This is why he created those laws in Deuteronomy 17. Limiting the abuses of the kings to make sure that they would not have a king like the nations. Let's turn to that for a moment. Deuteronomy 17. And in this, I want you to, to note the compassion and the love of, of God that shines through when he is writing this. Because like we saw before, he is looking ahead in history. He's not bound by time. And so he sees what's going to happen. Giving this law to them so many centuries before. Deuteronomy 17, starting at verse 14. We read, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. No, he knows. They're going to say, I'm going to set a, I want you to set a king over us like all of the nations around us. He knows. He says, when you say that, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turns away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So God is limiting the abuses of the king against the people here. And he is limiting the way that they can be led astray, led to look back towards their time of slavery in Egypt, representative of the time of their slavery to sin. But he goes on, also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from, one of the, from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. God is granting him a blueprint by which he can govern in a godly way. Do you see what God is doing here? This is even before the people enter into the land. They're led by a prophet, Moses. And the first king is a few centuries off for them. Yet here he is giving laws for kings to abide by. It might seem kind of funny to us that he did so, but it shows that God knew what he was doing. He knew the abuses that would be rained down on the people by their kings if their kings were not properly controlled. And so he created a system in which they would be protected, even despite knowing exactly what events would happen around the people choosing the king. Yes, God knew exactly how the kingship would arise. 
And yet he showed his love for his people in that he prepared to protect them from the full consequences of their sin, despite the fact that their sin deeply grieved them. By all rights, he could have left them to suffer the full weight of their consequences and let their decisions to choose a king over recognizing God as their king to destroy them. Yet, he showed his love for his people in that he warns them here. And he prepared to protect them from the consequences of their rejection of him, despite the fact that their sin deeply grieved him. Beloved, this is the kind of God we have. He is Yahweh, the covenant God. You can see that again in the capital name, in the capital letters of the name Lord. This is the Hebrew word, marks out the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who has established a relationship with his people. He will look out for his people even when they hurt him and grieve him. We see this already in the New Testament. Even while we were enemies, Christ died for us. How much more, having given up his own son, will he not give up all things for his people? Because his chosen people are collectively his beloved bride. Having chosen them, he would rather bear their guilt, bear their shame, bear the pain that they inflict on him, than cause them to run themselves into a situation in which they will be utterly lost or destroyed. That doesn't mean that there aren't individuals within Israel that will be destroyed. But this is his chosen nation. We see this further echoed, this compassion further echoed in the warning that Samuel gives. The kings would take their sons, appointing them for his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. In a nation in which everybody was already relatively equal, and being able to appoint their own judges and chiefs and elders over them, they would be debased. They would be just servants running before a king, being a hu- having a huge gap placed before them. This man would domineer over them. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers and the best of your fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to the servants. And we read about the further things that he does. And it says in response that you will cry out that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself. Their decision would destroy them as they were. They would be humbled and brought low. And to make things worse, Samuel warns, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. It's the equivalent of a father saying to his child, don't expect me to come running to you when the child does something he knows will hurt him. And yet the child falls, cries, The father lets the child feel the consequences of his action for a time. But then he comes to the aid of his child with fatherly love. Because this is his child. In the same way, we see the Lord warning Israel through Samuel. And the people are tormented for a time under kings. We only have to think of the forced labor under Solomon. 
And then his successor, King Rehoboam's threat to be even worse than his father. Whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And yet God still rescues them. Because though they might wander, he still cares for them as their father. And as much as they might try in this moment to reject his rule, he is still their heavenly king. He chose them and he cares for his subjects. God is indeed their heavenly king. And there's a certain sense of irony that happens in the words which we see coming immediately after that. He says to Samuel in our passage, he says to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. In saying these words, God chose who is ultimately in control here, even though they have appointed themselves a king. They are not getting a king because they have demanded it. They are not getting a king because of their persuasive arguments. In fact, their arguments have just grieved God. They are getting a king because God, the high king, the heavenly king, has allowed it. It's as we read in the New Testament, in Romans 13, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Samuel reinforces this by commanding everyone to go to their own hometown, assumedly to wait while he's making the arrangements and looking for the one whom God will appoint. This is the God we have. He reigns as king despite all of the pretensions of man. Mankind's actions are almost laughable when they're done in opposition to God. The psalmist describes what happens in Psalm 2, saying, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord holds them in derision. He laughs because it's pitifully weak when the people set themselves up as enemies of God. Psalm 2 goes on to say, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But even here, we see God's kindness pour through. Because while he deals with his enemies severely, in the very same instant, he deals with his people gently. Even though his people seek an earthly rule, he corrects us and guides us, placing us under the rule of the one whom he has set as king. Placing us under the rule of the one who is the king of the universe, the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, the rule of the Messiah foretold in this psalm, the rule of King Jesus. The Lord has always been that way. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when he created humanity in the perfection of beauty, caring for them, giving them absolutely everything they needed, And they slapped him in the face by taking the forbidden fruit. He cast them out of the garden, yes. They felt the sting of the consequences, yes. But he saved mankind from being utterly destroyed by their actions. 
Because at the very same time that he cast them out, he provided them with the promise of a Savior. He promised the Messiah who would come to redeem them and save them from their sins, who would take their griefs and their burdens upon himself, who would make all things right. This is the God we have. This is the king you have if you believe in him. Yes, you may face the consequences of your sin, beloved, and they can be terribly painful. When we turn away from God's leadership and we look to other things for leadership in this world, when we look to people, when we submit God's leadership to the authority of other people, when we let our spouses take priority over God's leadership, when we let our work, when we let our entertainment, when we let anything else take authority over God's leadership, we are choosing different leaders than God. And that can result in consequences for our sin, painful consequences. But if you put your trust in Him, with Jesus Christ as your King, God will not allow you to be utterly destroyed. Because as Yahweh, as the covenant God, He is yours and you are His. In His high priestly prayer, after praying for Himself and His disciples, our Lord Jesus Christ expressed this exact same sentiment in a prayer for all believers. He prayed this about you. I do not pray for these alone, he says, talking about his disciples. But I pray also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. He prayed this about you. Think about that for a moment, beloved. If you believe in your Savior, Jesus Christ, if you submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ by the grace of God, your king prayed this about you. Oh, he knew what kind of people you and I were and you and I are. He knows what you did Friday night. He knows what the state of your heart is. He knows the confusion and fear that you live in. He knows the arrogance that dwells in you and the false humility, which is really pride, and the doubts and perhaps even blasphemous thoughts you have had. I know that he knows this about you because I know that he knows this about me. His word reveals this to us. And yet he looks 
at us. And he not only prays that, that we belong to him, that we are one with him, but his prayer goes on. Our king says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you have loved me from before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. He says this about you. He says this about me. Even though he looks in the deepest and darkest corners of our hearts where we wouldn't let anyone else go for fear and for shame. Even though he knows how we sin and fall short every day, he loves you and he loves me. We may feel guilty about our own lack of leadership in the home. We may feel guilty of our own lack of leadership in the community, our failures, our shortcomings. But we have someone who has been the perfect leader, the perfect ruler, and the perfect king on our behalf. By his death on the cross, we are forgiven of all of our sins. They are wiped clean and replaced with his perfect obedience with the perfect obedience of our King. And by His Holy Spirit, we're transformed each and every day to become more like Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of that, let us actively seek out to live, live our lives under the rule of this King, King Jesus. Let us rejoice in His perfect rule and His perfect and good commands. And having been washed clean from our sins, let us look to Him as our perfect model for leadership loving those in our care, putting aside our own wants for their benefit, and leading them as Christ our King leads us, leading them to Christ our King. Amen.